Good afternoon. We are coming to you live from the home office. It is the final show of the semester. And today, Dr. Rob is going to take a little bit of a break because we have a student guest host who will be running the show as we're going to talk about or rather unpack going from disability to visibility in five, four, three. Good afternoon. I'm sorry, something got my windpipe. We are now going to just turn it back over to our student, our student host, Caleb Ingram, and he's going to go ahead and take it from there. Caleb, you've got next. Hello, everybody. Um, so we're just going to go ahead and jump right into the podcast again. My name is Caleb Ingram. Um, I'm a senior criminal justice student. Um, and so let's go ahead and get into the first current event for today. All right, so our first current event um, is just talking about the new Twitter accessibility updates that they've added onto the app. Um, today's podcast is going to be really centered around disabilities um, and how they're portrayed in the media. Um, and so for this first current event, um, Twitter, I think back in late March, added some new accessibility um, to their app, just allowing for photo captions. Um, so people who maybe have certain disabilities as far as visual or audio, um, they can turn on um, this feature within the app. And so if there are different photos or uh, videos that they come across on their timeline, um, they're able to still like see or hear what is going on um, in the photo or video. Um, and I also just wanted to add that um, Elon Musk just purchased the app for $45 billion um, last week. Um, so we're not sure what's going to be happening with that. Um, but moving on to the next topic. Um, we're talking, right, so uh, Hallmark is coming out with a new movie, actually this month, um, with two Down Syndrome actors, um, and the plot line will actually have a lot to do with uh, the mental disability. Um, so I just thought this was a really interesting uh, kind of new movie that was coming out. Um, we just had Eternals uh, earlier last year that had a really diverse cast. Um, and featured, featured some disabled actors as well. So I think it's really nice um, just to see uh, bigger diversity more than the, more than just race um, on the big screen. What, what did you guys think about that? Yeah, I agree because a lot of times, like you were saying, when we think about diversity, we don't extend it past maybe race or gender and into things like disability, because I think it's very important to represent the real people that are living in the world so that not only do they see themselves and they know that they exist and they can be inspired by what they see other people like them doing, but so that people that don't identify with them can see them as well and make space for them. Definitely, definitely. Um, anybody else? Okay, moving right along. So um, to our next topic, um, the Oscars, um, 
was just a few weeks ago. Um, I think we all kind of seen some events that happened um, at that award show. Um, but something that wasn't really, uh, I think, given enough um, news was all the different um, winners that were that won awards during that night um, that, again, covered a lot of different um, diversity uh, categories as, as far as race, um, gender, sexuality, um, and even some actors um, and performers with disabilities um, won awards. Um, so I thought that was uh, just a really good thing um, that was able to happen. Um, I do think as far as Hollywood, um, recently I think we're moving into definitely a more diverse um, atmosphere. Um, well, like I said, with the new Hallmark movie and just in all, I think there's a lot more uh, diversity. And so that's uh, shown here at the winners at the Oscars. Um, so let's go ahead and move on to the next topic. All right. Um, so I'll actually have one of our other uh, students kind of explain this current event. Um, Makar, if you'd like to. Um, El Sabaka sued the um, Olympia Entertainment because he feels like it violates his civil rights due to age discrimination and uh, disability. Um, the problem was that he urinated in a tube right next to the Zamboni. An employee saw that he was doing this and reported it to the boss. The boss had a conversation with him. However, the conversation didn't go as how he thought it would. Um, he felt like his boss was going to be more understanding due to his condition. He's diagnosed with benign prostatic trypophagy, which is a condition in men that um, allows you to urinate frequently. So as he had the conversation with the boss, the boss suspended him for a week and two weeks after they fired him for bad judgment. So how do you guys feel about it? Uh, yeah, I'll go first. Um, I also kind of think that this was really wrong. Um, I think a lot of times in hiring, uh, they don't take account for people with disabilities and they just kind of give everyone or just see everyone on like the same equal playing field um, and that's oftentimes not the case. Um, so I think maybe different hiring practices might kind of fix some of these problems that are here today because um, I definitely don't think this is the only time that something like this has happened. Um, I agree with Caleb, but uh, I thought that there was a separate like Olympics for people with disabilities too. So that could be maybe one of the reasons why they're not so sensitive. Well, I think, too, when you said that they fired him for bad judgment, that just kind of struck me because it's like, like you were saying, it's an uncontrollable condition. So it's not up to his judgment. So I think there was a lack of open mindedness in that scope. But at the same time, we're also seeing a lack of accommodation. So your solution is to fire him or to suspend him or whatever the case may be, rather than say, okay, what can we do to accommodate these conditions? Definitely. Um, so at this time, Zakari, did you want to um, introduce the guests that you had on for today? Yes, um, I have a guest today. Her name is Ashley. She will be um, pretty much just going over about disabilities and, you know, how well, she works with people with disabilities and um, how it's affecting people in the media. So. All right. 
and if we can bring her to the fourth. Hello, my name is Gregory Rogers. I am a football player here at NCCU. I am also a five-time dean list, and I am a social butterfly. But I also got ADHD. So Hello, Miss Kelly, how are you? Hi there, thank but you I have for trouble staying still, concentrating really class, things of that nature. But I beat the odds. So don't let ADHD wait on your mind. And you can beat the odds too. Hi there. Uh, thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I understand and appreciate that I'm a stranger to all of you. Uh, so uh, thank you for inviting me into the space. Um, as was stated, my name is Ashley. Um, first and foremost, I'm a biracial queer woman of color who also has uh, a physical disability as well as a uh, potentially fatal neuromuscular uh, condition. Um, and that has kind of largely shaped my personal life and um, in effect um, been largely influenced my professional life as well. Um, my degree is in social work and sociology. Um, and I think I kind of knew about um, bias and ableism and how uh, empowering and speaking up for yourself um, was a part of my life uh, because frankly I grew up knowing kind of as soon as I could understand uh, the verbiage and the language um, I was different um, but my family based that more on the premise of my being sick so I had to kind of learn to identify certain symptoms because of it. I was experiencing those. Um, I, I was I was sick and, and could need help. Uh, but that wasn't enough for me. Um, and I think while my family was well intended, uh, I think what they also did um, by starting that conversation unfortunately put me in a sense of uh, inequality, right? Uh, because they weren't talking to me in the same way that they would talk to the two other grandchildren that were involved. Um, they were speaking from a place of uh, insubordination, um, that I had to learn how to speak up and I had to be louder than the people in the room because I was going to be overlooked, um, if not by um, visual representation, but because um, I was just not in a position of power as a person with disability and that's something that we largely see um, when it comes to caretakers for those that have more extensive needs that need 24-7 run clock care. Um, people tend to get overlooked. Um, I've seen some of my friends with that kind of capacity. They'll be at a restaurant with their caregiver and the waitress will look to the caregiver for, you know, what do we, something as simple as what do we want for dinner. Um, I see this a lot with um, brought in interpreters as well. Um, so if you're having a one-on-one -on -one dialogue with um, a person who's hard of hearing or needs um, interpreting services, somebody will directly ask the interpreter, which often or should um, present in the interpreter literally just signing the question because that is their job. They're there uh, to be ears to a conversation, not to be the voice behind it. Um, and something as small as that has a huge impact um, on our society, um, which kind of brings me back to uh, the Oscars, which was really huge this year uh, for persons within the community, also bearing in mind 
Um, it's a large, diverse community with um, different varying abilities, and I certainly cannot speak for us all. We all have our different um, circumstances and opinions and experiences. Um, but CODA, um, which was a film that was highlighted and uh, awarded, actually, um, at the Oscars was huge for us. Um, that is a group of very diverse um, lack of, of hearing ability or different varying hearing abilities um, being represented on the main stage, not as able-bodied actors portraying them, but as them having the power and autonomy to portray themselves and live in our stories, um, which is huge because uh, up until recently that hasn't been seen. I can think of quite a few movies. Um, Me Before You, um, which was a huge novel success, um, but again you brought in an able-bodied actor to play a quadriplegic man. Um, Sia has also gotten herself in some hot water in the last year and a half. Um, she released a movie on Amazon Prime called Music that was about uh, the storytelling and life of someone who um, has severe autism and is not communicative in the traditional sense. Um, she came under a lot of hot fire because she uh, hired Maddie Ziegler, who uh, is well known for being a dancer for Sia. Uh, but when posed the question, why didn't you bring in a um, an autistic actor? Uh, Sia's um, response was, uh, and I quote, um, I felt that the pressures were too much and that it would be harmful for her. Um, so there were two kind of uh, reactions to this, right? We had one side um, that was saying, well, Sia was trying to be considerate. I'm afraid I don't see it that way, but I come from a, a disabled person's lens, so I might not. Um, but what we're also seeing there is that power dynamic, right? Um, of somebody who is not within the community, uh, who is not well-versed with that young lady, making a judgment on our abilities, whether it's perceived or um, factual. And that happens far too often, uh, is somebody speaking for us instead of listening to us. Uh, and that's infuriating and can be um, very, very dangerous. Um, so that's kind of how I shifted into uh, the personal world or professional world, excuse me. Um, I work for a domestic violence shelter um, because unfortunately um, people with disabilities um, are about 50% more likely to experience abuse um, and they each have their own sublets. Um, but of that 50%, I believe the current statistic is about 40% of those people know their abuser um, and it is somebody that is very close to them and in power, which means a parent, a sibling, or a caregiver. Um, the exact people that are put um, arguably on this planet uh, to love and protect us, um, and that is not what we see. Um, and society largely uh, shapes that, because if you only uh, see us through one lens, or if you only portray us in one lens, um, you're not seeing the whole picture. Um, and I will not sit here and say that um, I despise my disability. I hate that I have it. Uh, it has certainly been a journey. I, I was a resentful, angry teen um, growing up because I was very different and that was not celebrated. Um, but we are losing too many of our community's lives um, because we are not seen and heard and I will not stand for that. I cannot. Um, so I entered the realm um, in the profession to try to help. 
um, but that also had me call into my own experiences as well. I'm a naturally very shy and reserved human being, which uh, is ironic given that I'm a social worker. Uh, I am a pit bull, but not when it comes to my own story. Um, I will fight vehemently for any of you, um, but not often for myself. Uh, and that is why I started my own blog as well, so that the people around me could see more than just the smile and the uh, demeanor that I present, um, which is very often a mask because it keeps me safe in a very ableist world. Um, but my starting my own blog was my way to own um, my story, to unpack um, the experiences, and largely to try to heal from um, the abuse and the danger um, that has been inflicted by society um, that largely goes untold. Um, so I am so mm -hmm. thankful that you're having these kind of dialogues and it is so, so refreshing um, to kind of see the questions you're asked and you guys holding the space um, because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't happen enough. Thank you for that, Miss Kelly. Um, so just a couple questions for you. Um, so in your uh, professional opinion, could you define um, what ableism is um, to you um, as long as well as giving like a textbook uh, definition if you had one? Sure. So ableism um, or ableist thinking is essentially, uh, by definition, the inequality um, of existence uh, due to lack of knowledge, experience, or perspective of understanding that varying abilities agree um, or appear. So um, I'm currently talking to you all by sitting down. Um, you can't see my lower uh, body, which is largely the area that's infected. Um, and I'm keeping my hands out of sight so that you guys don't see um, the very shaky side effects that tend to come with uh, my physical condition. Um, so by appearance, if I were to uh, present myself as such, uh, it might be come across that uh, I'm able-bodied. Um, and that very assumption, as small as that is, is completely ableist. Um, it is grounded in the spaces that only what you see exists. Um, and that uh, theory or way of thinking literally applies through every spectrum of, of uh, life, right? Professional, uh, personal, intimate, otherwise. Uh, I work uh, primarily in a hospital. Um, a, a hospital. <laughs> So one would think, by definition, um, you're probably seeing those with injuries, varying abilities, um, those needing extra care. And yet somehow I, I still can only use one bathroom on my floor because though it is uh, advertised as accessible, my wheelchair doesn't fit in the bathroom. Mm. So uh, I'm, I'm very uh, grateful and very blessed that I can use uh, my body to walk for very limited amounts of time, so about a hundred feet at a time. Um, so I have the ability to take myself out of my chair, walk into the bathroom, leave my wheelchair outside of it, and return. Um, but that's that's not accessible. Um, right. There are places that I have to get out of my wheelchair to do my job. Um, because I can't fit in that space. Um, and when I was first hired, there was a whiteboard that I had to write uh, doctor's names on at the beginning of its shift um, that was about mm, six inches out of my reach. 
um, when I was standing. So again, I couldn't be sitting in my wheelchair. Um, and I got chastised. I actually got written up because that task took me too long. Um, but nobody stopped to ask why it took me so long if I can't reach the board. Um, so their solution was to just pass it off to my, uh, who was my supervisor at the time, instead of addressing the environment. Um, so a, a very quick judgment was made on my ability to see a task through instead of asking themselves, what can we do within our limits and boundaries and necessity to make this a more accessible space? Um, which then puts the burden of um, ability on persons with disability, which is not fair. Um, a lot of people tend to assume that accessibility is a privilege. Um, that is something I hear a little too often, um, is that I'm asking for too much. Um, accessibility uh, is a legal federal right. Um, I'm not asking for you to dismantle the hospital um, so that I can safely move and exist. I'm asking you to make minor changes so that I can exist in the space with just as much ease as somebody who does not have uh, my condition. So what I'm asking for is quality, not superiority, um, because that's, that isn't going to happen. And if it does, that then puts me in a position that is no better than the perpetuance of um, abuse that, that we have sustained over the years. Uh, so that's really frustrating. <laughs> I've got a question as well. Um, we often see people with disabilities portrayed positively in terms of being able to live life and persevere, which I think is very important. But you did mention that you have a blog where you acknowledge the struggles. So how important do you think, or the difficulties, I should say, how important do you think it is to show both sides and not, you know, to have a realistic perspective of what it's really like to live life? Yeah, that, oh, that's a powerful question. And I kind of wish that my family were sitting amongst you guys. Um, right, a hospital, a bloody hospital is, you would think the, the first place that uh, accessibility would exist. Um, but to get back to your question, Dallas, um, so I think that each side of that can have very detrimental uh, effects. And, and what that speaks to um, is uh, toxic positivity. Um, so for a very, very long time, uh, meaning only, uh, I'm, I'm 30 now, I would say probably only in the last seven or six years, um, have I very, very clinically and directly addressed, um, my mental health so that it wasn't a secret. Um, but, uh, the, the phrase that I hear a lot is you're so happy. I would have never known. Um, sure, I can explain toxic positivity. I would have never known that you struggled. Um, so toxic positivity is a phrase used uh, in the field uh, that addresses the state that someone is always happy. Um, you, you just keep going. Um, I don't know how you do it. The, these are uh, toxic positivity, but also forms of microaggressions. Um, so my family was well accustomed to uh, my smile um, because that is how I shielded them from the very harmful impacts of, of my conditions and my symptoms because that is not within their control. And I shielded them. I, I babied them, um, which was also toxic. 
Um, but when I directly say, um, for example, I, I haven't as of yet, but if I ever call out of work because my symptoms have flared up 20 minutes before I have to go to work, which leaves me paralyzed for however long it takes, um, it is not realistic. Um, that I'm going to always be happy. And if you only celebrate or acknowledge um, that I have it together, meaning today I have a job, today I have my health, today I have the ability to sit up and connect with you all, uh, but in 30 seconds, that could completely change. Uh, to expect um, uh, like this line of, of happiness is the only way of existing just simply isn't. Um, it's not realistic and it sets an incredible burden on yourself, um, whether it's put on you or other people to be happy, to make others comfortable with our ability, um, and our symptoms. And it's, it's incredibly painful. Um, but yeah. I also know that others really struggle, um, to find the words to articulate, um, hey, I'm, I'm greatly struggling. And there are often external factors that, that factor into that, that often are not within our control, our control. So it's one or the other. It's, um, it's, it's essentially not embracing your humanity and everything that comes, comes with that, uh, because, uh, regardless of your ability, uh, your gender, your race, your sexuality, your identity, uh, life is, is beautiful and it's a gift, but it's incredibly messy as we all are as people. You cannot expect us to just flit through the world um, happy. That's not how it works. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for that, Miss Kelly. Um, we are going to take a quick break. Um, I hate to cut you off. Um, we're going to go on to a short little commercial break. Um, um, and when we get back, uh, we'll be showing some different PSAs on disabilities. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and cut right now. Social anxiety disorder has caused extreme mental, emotional, and behavioral stress, specifically in teenagers and adults. On average, it's affected by 15 million adults with a prevalence rate of 6.8, placing, placing it as the third most common mental disorder in the United States. If you would like to figure out ways to overcome or treatments, talk to someone, a therapist, friend, family member, or you can face your fears, use relaxation techniques, understand and avoid negative thoughts. And if you would like to learn more, visit websites. ADAA. In America, nearly half of girls ages 13 to 17 are unhappy with their bodies. Adolescent girls are most at risk for developing negative body image from the unrealistic beauty standards mainstream media promote. These narrow standards can cause or worsen anxiety and depression, body dysmorphia, and eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia. Social media and television are not reality. Don't let the media change your diet. Change your media diet. Caleb, you're back. Oh, I, I didn't know if they had one. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, no so going, on, so going on to our next topic of discussion. Um, we're just going to be detailing um, and discussing about Kanye West's kind of public uh, struggles with mental health, um, and kind of how that's been portrayed in the media. 
um, and just the different opinions that uh, people have been sharing on social media about it. So firstly, I want to get uh, you guys' opinion. So what do you guys think about, um, I don't know if you have seen or what you have seen, um, of just kind of public um, struggles that Kanye West has been dealing with uh, with his mental health? Um, Kanye West has been going through a lot. Like, um, he has been, well, as they, as they say, he has been stalking Kim after their divorce. Um, he's just, he's just going, it's just, it's just a lot in his mind that makes it, it probably seems like he has, um, a mental health issue, but he probably doesn't. He's just, he's just open. He doesn't, he probably just doesn't care, but it's, it's a very wide range of emotion that he shares. And it's just, it's just a lot that channels into it. I think. Oh, were you speaking, Robinson? Speaking, would you help the doctor to unmute his microphone? Sorry. I was going to jump in on this one um, because it's weird. He's going through a serious life challenge, you know, the ending of a marriage. Having said that, he also clearly does and has admitted that he deals with mental illness. Um, the challenge here, though, is that as you have mental illness, it does not give you carte blanche to be dysfunctional. And I think a large part of the time, I mean, even as one who lives with it myself, I live with anxiety disorder, but I treat it. And if we don't do the things we have to do to treat the disorder, if we don't do things to treat X, Y, Z, then in essence, we are, in my opinion, and I would love to hear from the guests to talk about this. I think, in my opinion, if we're not doing what we can and approaching this as we can, um, as lucidly as we can, then we could be contributing to the negative depictions of how people perceive folks with disability and or mental illness. What do you think, ma'am, Miss Kelly? I think you're right. Um, and I think he, I, I would love for him to be able to have some insight uh, and recognize that he's he's coming from an incredible position of power that I, I could never even grasp. Um, is as as a person of color, as somebody who is is well off, um, but I think he needs to be mindful um, that I, I think if I'm correct, he has been open and identified that he has, I believe, bipolar. I, I don't know which one. I believe uh, mania. Bipolar two, I think. Yep. Um, so I, what I fear there is that if he's identified what he has um, and then behaves in this way, I think that uh, society will meet him in the middle and go, um, they're either going to write him off or call him crazy. Um, and it's going to be allowed because he has X, Y, or Z. Um, I think you and I would agree, sir, having a diagnosis as somebody who has uh, PTSD and anxiety, um, I'm still expected to see my life through and be in charge of uh, my faculties. And if there's a time and a place that I can't be, and there has been, um, that I, my responsibility is to then get help and uh, worst case scenario, you know, be institutionalized until I can be. Um, but I think if we simply write it off as he has this, um, and he's going through a lot, which he kind of think is, um, but going through a, a lot does not then give you permission to uh, behave uh, inappropriately. And if 
others allow him to do so, you're then essentially enabling that. And what is scary to me as, as a young woman who works with uh, battered women, um, what I'm seeing uh, just on its face, so I, I can't speak clinically, but what I'm seeing is, is stalking. I'm seeing escalation. And if he's in a position of power and enabled, and if Kim Kardashian West, who I believe has a background in, in law, has resources and money and arguably one of the most famous families in the world, if she is subject to this and not able to stop it, what does that say about uh, the very vast number of men and women who are in the same position and cannot do anything? That's incredibly scary. Good point. Dallas, you're about to say something. Oh, I was just going to acknowledge that um, I think Kim actually went to her Instagram stories at one point to acknowledge that he did have bipolar disorder. So that was just the point that I was going to make. But I also think that what both of you are saying is that there's a sense of responsibility that comes with your platform. Like he ran for president and people were voting for him, I believe. So he has a lot of responsibility as a public figure. Um, but I don't know if I could speak to how you should go about handling that. Um, but I do think that, like you said, take the responsibility for yourself. Take a moment to step back. We live in this age of social media where everything is immediately going to social media. Nothing's private anymore. Um, but I definitely think that he should take a moment to step back and do some introspection and evaluate himself. And to piggyback off of what Dallas said, I do agree that <clears throat> that he needs to take a break off of social media. He's not really helping his case with his mental with his mental health issues by constantly being in the media. He's not really taking time to, you know, to fix himself or to at least um, to calm down his issues that he's having. He's just constantly in the media and he's not making anything that he's doing anywhere. I agree as well. And I, I think the tone that the media chooses to use when they kind of talk about these stories or kind of talk about different things that are going on, I don't really think they're even giving him the space like to just be a man that's struggling with this disorder or just being a regular person and not be Kanye West, you know, the international superstar and all this other stuff. And I feel like almost it, they want to like show like this negative depiction and they don't want to, you know, talk about the different medication that he may or may not be taking or uh, different places he may be going to uh, get further help. Um, so I also think at while it is um, a lot on Kanye West's responsibility, uh, with this disorder, I think it is um, the news media's responsibility to make sure that they're like, uh, I guess, cut, making sure they're showing the full picture of what's going on and not just trying to show someone at their lowest um, when there's a lot more that they could show regarding this disability. This is for our guest. I want to raise this question. You know, when we see disability in media, you know, we it's often reflected as what one can see. As we look at Kanye West, we are seeing, and there are others out there, I would even put DMX in the same category. When you see a person who is dealing with, let's say, the disability that we really don't see until after there is a negative side effect, um, in the case of Kanye, the meltdowns. In the case of DMX, I would say the substance abuse. What is it? Um, what do you think we can do, or what do you think media, not just Hollywood, but even media can do to, I guess, start portraying, having serious conversations 
about disability, particularly those that we don't see. And I will even further that about disability within the black and BIPOC community. So I think, oh, that's a loaded question. Uh, I, I think first, how much time do you have? So I think first, uh, the, the very painful question has to be asked, uh, which is very uncomfortable and um, and it, depowering, um, which is what are we gaining by highlighting the and showcasing and spotlighting the very negative impact um, that uh, of Kanye West's behavior. Let's go. Will Smith is another one who does have a history of, of um, mental illness um, and both have addressed those very differently. Um, but you have to stop giving it power in the sense that you're only acknowledging uh, the bad, um, which is incredibly difficult to do. Um, like Will Smith uh, right now, we're acknowledging the very public and, and very heightened and the very extreme uh, negative consequence and action that, that he chose. Um, but what you're not doing is showing the human behind that. Um, to my knowledge, Kanye West has started schools. He has brought in money to impoverished areas for persons of color, uh, persons with varying disabilities. Um, so while I think um, we have to hold them accountable and you have to see an action through, I, you know, for every one that we make, there will be others. Um, but just as you hold them accountable for one, you also have to celebrate um, what they've also done. Because if you only crucify someone, if you only heighten what they've done wrong, what you're doing is inadvertently spiraling them into uh, the shame that they already have, the guilt they're already dealing with, which makes them internalize it and hide it. Um, which then means that we, we don't see them struggling behind closed doors, which brings us to a place of equality. Um, I am sure all of you, um, if you will pardon the assumption, have struggled. I am sure each of you has a part of your story that I can connect with. And for most of you have something within your story that the people that love you don't know. Um, and you have chosen to hide that for for reasons I, I can only speculate about. Um, but you have to be able and willing to see it all and not just um, one or the other. Exactly, everyone's human and everyone struggles. Um, so you have to you have to see the human uh, in the same line that you see the success, in the same light that you see the, the symptoms. It is all one. You cannot isolate them and then criticize one or the other. It, it goes together. And it's true. I think we have to also, as you point out, highlight where we do see the successes, where we do see the advocacy. Um, and it's weird. I just had a student complete a research project where he was exploring the, the language of sportscasters who were criticizing Black athletes who were self-advocating for their own mental well-being, their mental health. And, and I find that problematic. Have you all heard about, I think it was, uh, God, who was it? Naomi Osaka. And I think a few others who just said, stop. The Olympic stage is so, so big. And it's playing with our minds. But then the expectation is that I think that going back to what someone said, 
that athletes, particularly black, are black athletes just as human as, let's say, Michael Phelps. I did see backlash with um, Naomi Osaka. I think when, I can't remember exactly what had happened, but she was thinking about quitting um, tennis or whatever. And a lot of people were saying, oh, you lose one match or whatever, and now you want to quit and, you know, saying a bunch of negative things, but they were just looking at the surface and not really thinking about the mental pressure, the pressure of being, having this platform and having these responsibilities and the physical pressure of it all. So um, I definitely had seen that. And yeah, it's, um, I'm not surprised at all with, you know, the difference in how we treat people of color, treat ourselves actually. Um, but yeah, I had seen that struggle. And honestly, until now, I didn't think about, well, there could be that mental aspect, that physical aspect, not just these surface reasons that people think that there are. Ashley, do you think that we give, that we really are more empathetic to the disability that we see compared to the disability that we don't see? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, hugely, I, I, I cannot speak as to why, perhaps um, because we can we can tangibly see it and feel it. Um, I, okay, case in point, I um, had two surgeries seven weeks apart uh, two months ago for the condition that uh, can take my life but can't be seen. Um, and there was some pushback from work uh, for that. Um, and they had said, well, if you would have called out because of your legs, that would make sense. WTF moment, we get it. <laughs> you want you want me to call out because of my legs because it makes sense to you. Um, not for the one that could kill me, but for the one that's really more of an inconvenience. Why? Because you can tangibly understand it. That that that's not on us. That mm-mm. Mm-mm. So I guess as a society, and this is for everybody, um, what can we do? How can we use this superpower we call mass media to, to begin to have a consciousness raising, not just about the issues or the disabilities that we see, but also about the ones we don't see? How do we begin to raise the consciousness of being a truly accessible society? And also, I was going to call it out, outing ableism, anyone. Um, I think one way that at least for people my age uh, could do it is just kind of like calling our peers out um, when we see different ableist remarks or uh, just different assumptions that could be made about people, um, whether that be like social media or just in different social settings that we may be in. Because um, I think like once uh, us as young people just kind of make it like just, I won't say a trend, but just kind of make it like a norm that these things are not allowed um, and these things, you know, just can't be said about certain people. Um, I think that um, can kind of start to shift, at least on the ground level. Um, but I do think there's a lot um, uh, that different news mediums have to take, in, take into responsibility as like how they portray uh, different people with disabilities and how they give people with uh, disabilities access, um, whether that be like producing shows or just any um, other job, uh, those people should be able to have access to it. 
Right. I agree, which I was I was going to say almost exactly what he said. Um, like we saw with Coda, the director, um, Cian Hader, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but she does not identify with the deaf community, nor has deaf parents. But she portrayed this on screen by doing research, by hiring actors or casting actors who are deaf and who do identify with the community. So I think it goes back to having the initiative to do your research, having the initiative to scout out these communities. But also, like he was saying, um, have these people in the quote unquote driver's seat, have people with disabilities to be able to portray that authentically on screen and to be able to catch those moments where it's like, okay, this might not necessarily be the way you wanna go about it or whatever the case may be. I think the other thing too, I would add too. So representing those of us who are old people, uh, <laughs> no. Um, so you probably don't realize there was an old TV show on back in the sixties called Ironside. It was about, well, it was about this detective who was shot and became a paraplegic starred Wayne Burr, who interesting, no one knew that he was a queer man. Um, the show was re-imaged in 2012, but it was re-imaged with Blair Underwood and he was the black titular character. Um, Ironside. Now, I mentioned that because there's another person who you all may not recall. His name was Daryl Chill Mitchell. Daryl Chill Mitchell, he actually was the DJ in the first House Party movie. He had a nasty motorcycle accident that left him a paraplegic. So it's interesting that he actually got a part on one of the, C, uh, one of the NIS or NCIS franchise shows. I think it was NCIS. I believe it was New Orleans. And he played a wheelchair bound uh, cyber criminologist. So I guess the key is it goes back to authenticity. What we can probably do as well, I think, is to really start giving the people who are actors, uh, actresses, creative artists, if you will, who do have these disabilities and put them in those roles. What do you think about that? Um, <laughs> okay, well, yeah, I was going to like just to piggyback on what you said. They are a plethora of mental health issues. There are different disabilities. Um, this is a time where everyone is really speaking up about what they're going through, about their disorders and stuff like that. So, um, I feel like like giving like giving jobs to like to people who are. <clears throat> You know what I'm saying? People who are um, struggling or like affected by these these issues that, that they're going through is making a change in the world. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like we, we, we see people who will regularly have these jobs who are not in these fields anymore. You know, so they're, they're being taken over by people who are going through issues or having. Um, yeah, we have a question from the studio audience, the virtual studio audience, and it says when applying for jobs, do employers ask disability questions for equal employment or to make a judgment? Does that need to stop and maybe address that topic after hire? What do you think, gang? I would say I think it's an important question to ask just so that you can address accommodations. I don't know what the true intentions are, but you know, from a positive 
optimistic perspective, it's so that you can accommodate for whatever those that person's needs are. I would hope. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with Dallas. I think in an optimistic way, I think we would like hope that I think they're asking those questions for accommodations. Um, I do think maybe subconsciously when a person is looking at an application and they see that someone has a disability, I think they that there are probably some like ableist judgments that may be made um, and that sometimes can be shown um, where like the person, once they start the job, they may not be doing, you know, tasks that everyone else uh, with the same position may be doing, or they may have to do like remedial tasks or um, things just because uh, I guess their boss or whoever may have said that or seen them as someone that can't handle certain tasks or can't handle certain things just because of this, their disability, even though uh, they have the same job title as everyone else. Right. Uh, on that note, we're going to take a quick pause for the cause and we're going to come back. We're going to show our last student created PSAs regarding the topic at hand. And I think I want to also get your critiques on some of these PSAs to figure out what you all think of them. So let me just go ahead and cut to a quick break and take some time to, as I said, pause for the cause and watch these last student PSAs dealing with disability. Research shows that in 2022, 83% of sports pay both men and women equally. Even though that percentage may seem high to some, there is still a gender sports pay gap issue. Many argue that the numbers should be equal across the board. Men athletes can make anywhere near 15% to nearly more than 100% more money than women athletes. A topic about the pay gap in sports is the longevity of how long the WNBA and the NBA has been established. The WNBA was established in 1997, which means it has been around for 25 years. And the NBA was established in 1946 and has been around for 75 years. According to research, the highest paying NBA player makes equivalent to 350 WNBA player salaries. There are strong beliefs that even though the NBA players have so much money invested, risk taken and promotion and marketing making numbers surpass the WNBA, that there is still an act of being sexist and discriminating the WNBA players worth and value. Do you think the WNBA and the NBA should be paid equal or do you think that there is differences between the WNBA and the NBA that causes them not to be paid the same? For years, people with disabilities have been on the back burner. They have been looked over and ignored in many situations that may not be important to people who look like me or you. It's hard enough to get up every day and deal with an issue that physically hinders or limits your activity. And employers make it even harder when they don't extend a fair employment opportunity to those who struggle with disabilities. Enough is enough. So how about we just say no to discrimination against disabilities, yo? For more information on this, visit Americans with Disabilities Act. Okay, so our first PSA came from Gregory Rogers, a graduating senior. <clears throat> we then had PSAs. I think they came from Dallas, and I think I can't think of the other part. I think was it was it Zakari or Imani? Um, no, it was Zakari. Zakari, yeah. Okay, and then we had the last PSAs that came to us from Marley, and I believe Tosin was that one yours at the end. Who did the last one? I think it was Imani. Imani. Okay, very good. So I want to thank you all for those. So having now gone through this show and seeing your PSAs, 
has your consciousness been raised at all regarding this topic and this issue? Uh, yes, I think I think just through the discussion, um, through, the, through the PSA as well as like what we've been talking about so far, um, has just shown all the different um, all, all the different ways um, that not only someone can be disabled, uh, but how this disability can affect them, um, as well as like the accessibility uh, for these disabilities. Okay. Someone else. Well, Caleb, you have some more slides in the presentation. I'm going to give those to you as we begin to wrap the show up because we don't want to take up all the time of our studio guests, our guests, or our audience. I'm going to turn this back to you. Sorry, I don't know if y'all could hear me. So the next topic um, was just the GLAD report findings. Um, and Dallas, I didn't know if you want to speak more on this um, since you kind of did the research for this. Yep, I can do that. So a 2021 GLAD report, um, which is an organization that monitors media representation for the LGBTQ plus community, they found that the percentage of disabled people on primetime television, it actually increased from 3.1% in 2020 to a record high of 3.5% last year. Now, the study looked at 773 regular characters expected to appear on scripted broadcast primetime programming on ABC, CBS, The CW, Fox, and NBC. And it based it on if they were, if they were premiering or expected to premiere um, between June 2021 and May of this year. Um, and another note comes from Variety VIP, where they report that Americans spend 4.6 hours a day watching video on streaming services or traditional TV. Now, this is from 2021, but that shows that representation is vitally important for how we see people or how we don't see them, particularly disabled individuals in society. All right. Um, and just to round uh, the podcast out, we did have a media diversity highlight that we wanted to show. Um, let me get that slide up. Um, so Bounty uh, teamed up with some artists. I think they were based in Cincinnati. Um, and, and they were different artists with uh, different disabilities. Um, and Bounty um, just wanted, wanted to showcase their art. Um, and so I wasn't able to get any of the advertising um, that these uh, art will be included in because um, they're actually working on it right now. Um, but Bounty did say that they will be including um, these different pieces of artwork uh, within their digital um, marketing as well as on some of the physical uh, like paper towel uh, uh, marketing as well as like other things that Bounty um, is releasing. Um, so that should be coming out within the next uh, couple of months. Like I said, the artwork is being created now. Um, but I just thought this was an interesting uh, little story uh, to add for the end of the show. Um, just to kind of show again, I think as a whole, um, I would say the media space is definitely moving to a more diverse um, and open um, environment. Uh, so yeah, I just like that story. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that anyway. Well, I think it's important. It's clear that we're beginning to see that they are opening up some spaces to have these long overdue discussions 
and not just overdue, but also authentic discussions. Um, uh, it's important, not just that we walk the walk, but we talk the talk and that we literally, um, sorry, talk the talk, but walk the walk, let me look at that back, right. But the main thing is, is that this data that you have pointed out to Dallas, uh, it's, it's crucial. And the key is, is that if we are truly about being an inclusive society, if we are truly about being one that celebrates the diversity, we have to also think about those who are not able-bodied. Uh, think about them in the sense of how they have been, quote, othered. And in some cases, by happenstance, by freak accident, by military service or public service, or just by predestined genetics, uh, people have these disabilities. And the key is that a disability does not mean disenfranchisement, but disability means ability with new sets of challenges. And it's up for those of us who have the ability to be creative, who have power to open up those doors as opposed to coming up with ways to shut them down. Ashley, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a rather robust conversation. Thank you. We hope you learned something. I did. Thank you so much for having me uh, in this space. Like I said, I think uh, something that I will take away is that I could uh, safely exist here. Uh, and that's beautiful because just in uh, the, the lifetime before me, people like me were being locked up and institutionalized and kind of kept away. Um, but I was free to move and, and exist uh, with you guys in a space that is run by my superiors, uh, just by making circumstance um, because of uh, your willingness to listen, challenge and change and grow uh, means that my community can do the same with you. So thank you all. Please stay safe. Uh, and I have the utmost confidence that you are going to slay however you move in this world. Be safe. Thank you. And on that note, everyone, thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next season for another round of the Intellectual Soul Food Lunch Buffet. To my graduating seniors, congratulations. Everyone else, have a safe, happy summer. Until then, be safe, be well. Peace.